listeners, welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare and contrast a book and movie adaptation. Yeah. And I don't have a funny opening like Danny does because I don't have the comedic chops. <laughs> My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. My name is Laura and I'm the lit expert. And we should say we haven't been saying this for the past, I don't know, 10 episodes, but full spoilers for... Yeah both the book and the movie. From start to finish, we are spoiling this movie, so. I assume people know that, but we should say that at the top. <laughs> whether or not we recommend the movie, we do recommend that you read the book or watch whatever we're talking about. If you care about spoilers. If you don't care, then go ahead and listen and whatever. Yeah. We, we love we love getting those listens, we but do. we'll gladly, we'll wait for you, is what we're yeah. saying. We'll be on the pier. Yeah. With the flowers. That's why we release our the titles of the next 10 episodes, because we want to make sure that people can keep ahead if they want to. No pressure. No pressure. You don't have to. That's what Danny always reminds me of with this podcast. He's like, we're not getting paid. It's not our job. But yeah. I put a lot of pressure on myself. So I'll, we'll just remind our listeners, there's no pressure. <laughs> and yeah, the goal, we're not doing this for sponsorships. Not that we're we going to make it. We would. We, yeah, we, we take would it. take the money. We need it. <laughs> but no, we're not doing it for that. We're doing it because we like doing this. We like talking to each other. I like this dame. I'm going to marry her. We're getting, we just chose our wedding venue. And we need money for the wedding. <laughs> so money. sponsorships, get over here. Or wine. So I stop spending my money on wine to get money through this pandemic. What if we get sponsored by uh, a winery? Yeah. A then I would never stop drinking. Mm. I think so. It's probably not the best. <laughs> well, we're never stop drinking on this podcast. We're always drunk. Well, we only do this drunk. Full disclosure, I'm actually not drinking right now because we're recording earlier in the day than normal. And if I started drinking and discussing this book slash movie that we're going to cover today, I don't know if I would recover because it's very dark. And it kind of sends me into a very dark place. <laughs> Shall right. we? Well, I, on the other hand, am always drunk, regardless of whether we're recording a podcast <laughs> or not. So, this yeah. This is to me. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me. <laughs> Anyways. He's not drunk. It's like 9 a.m. Tipsy. But uh, <laughs> I'm getting there. One more one more sip and I'll, I'll get there. But today we are covering just a very delightful story just a simple, straightforward story about a woman visiting her boyfriend's parents. <laughs> just very simple. It's a romantic comedy, feel-good movie of the of the of Christmas. You want to know something? <laughs> what? I actually wrote in my notes that this is an anti-rom-com. Yeah, I think that is an apt description, and that's exactly what Charlie Kaufman was going for. So, shall we introduce what we're going to cover on this? Yes, episode? today on the pod, we are covering I'm Thinking yeah, of Ending things. things. Yeah. I'm also going to break to apologize for any construction noise in the background. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're currently, I mean, it's Hollywood. They build a new apartment complex around the corner every single day. and We can hear it. It's fairly loud for us. But if it's not loud to you, then we'll cut this part out. Listen, we're busy people. We got to go eat some pizza after this. So we're not going to re-record. We're recording now. We're locked in. All right. Deal with it. Um, the <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> What's that from? The dog. 
deal with it. Oh, <laughs> bro, that's a TikTok <laughs> reference. That is very that's pup. That's about as inside joke as you could get, and our whole audience is now alienated from our conversation. <laughs> Let's reel them back. So, I'm thinking of ending things, which the movie just dropped on Netflix mm-hmm. around September time. We're looking it up now, but it's very recent, but we knew we wanted to cover this because, I mean, it's Charlie Kaufman, and if you're a cinephile or a film major or are into film at all, chances or are... you're engaged to someone who's obsessed with films. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's me. Yeah, by proxy, are, are looped into the film world. Chances are you know the name Charlie Kaufman. Initial release, 4th of September, 2020. Cool. Yeah. And it was dropped on Netflix, so on September 4th, it was available to watch everywhere, not in theaters. And it was always the plan to be dropped on Netflix because I doubt a movie like this could even make money in the theaters because no, it's so niche and esoteric. But that's that's Charlie Kaufman, and he is a man who is so smart, probably to his detriment. His movies are dense, and they require homework and are very... Yeah. indulgent and pretentious but let me say this that's not necessarily a bad thing i mean cinephiles love that type of stuff sure. for instance like indulgent pretentious movies can be great like i'm a huge fan of the tree of life and that movie is about as esoteric and non-linear as you can get i hated that. <laughs> most people do most people do and then I, a movie we also enjoy or at least i do and you were kind of creeped out a little but you liked it was enemy denis villeneuve's oh, film yeah, which with jake gyllenhaal i mean that entire movie is a metaphor just kind of like this movie is like it, the entire movie of enemy takes place enemy? in Enema, yeah. Um, the entire movie of Enema takes place inside his butt. Uh, no, uh, the entire movie of e- Enemy takes place inside the mind of Jake Gyllenhaal's character. That's not a spoiler. It's kind of early on in the movie. You kind of see that's what's happening. And then really seeing some crossovers now that you talk right. About that. I know they're yeah. very similar. And then also another indulgent, pretentious movie, American Psycho. We might we might talk about that in the future, but. You know, the entire movie of American Psycho is kind of this statement on the superficiality of the New York elite, and it's very artsy, of course violent, but it's up to your interpretation of whether the events happened or not. So those are three examples of movies that are, that's about as artsy-fartsy as you can get, but they're amazing movies in my opinion. Now, Charlie Kaufman, he, for me, and a lot of cinephiles are going to hate me for this, but he rides that line. He either creates masterpieces like Adaptation or Being John Malkovich. I know you hate that movie. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> I wanted to cut you off. So, or he, or he wrote um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So he either writes masterpieces or he writes movies that are, frankly, you know, this might sound silly, but are a little too smart for me, for me sure. personally. And a little too much work to be able to enjoy them. Right. And again, like with a movie like Tree of Life, Enemy, American Psycho, you need to do work in those movies as well. However, it's not like the amount of work you need to do here where you have references to Oklahoma, Oklahoma and you have references to Pauline Kale, who's this movie critic in the 90s yeah. and it, it's it's almost laughable sorry not to cut you off but when I was reading an interview with Charlie Kaufman and he started talking about he started getting into the nitty-gritty of the musical Oklahoma I was like 
okay. This is this is deep cuts here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, you're not even going for a musical like West Side Story or something like that. We're like, you know, a lot of people have seen it, but it's sort of yeah. not in the popular conversation mm-hmm. anymore. Like, if you make a reference to West Side Story, it'd kind of be like, what? But you get the sharks and the jets. Like, you know, people kind of know that. But, like, Oklahoma. Like, come on. Yeah, I didn't. For (laughs) all the research I did was after the movie because I'm like, oh, okay, that's a a reference to Oklahoma. That's a reference to Judd, the character who Jake is supposed to be, kind of. And Yeah, I I was just, I was very lost when I was. Yeah, oh, me too. Research. And again, I feel like I'm losing some credibility from my fellow cinephiles and film majors. And I want to say that, listen, I understand the brilliance of Charlie Kaufman. I understand the amount of layers and metaphors and film techniques that he employed in this movie. I just think it crossed the line of indulgence mm-hmm. and, and pretension for me that I ultimately am still frustrated and didn't really enjoy the movie. I did rewatch it twice, so that says something about, you know, how enveloping and how the mystery of of Charlie Kaufman's writing, how you want to discover the answers or come up with your own interpretations. However, the fact of the matter is, it's a two-hour-plus movie, way too long, way too indulgent. 20 minutes easily could have been cut out. Well, that last scene. Yeah. Oh my God, where it's literally a recreation of Oklahoma. Yeah. Beat for beat. I, I, we just watched Citizen Kane a little while ago because we're preparing for Mank, which we're literally gonna watch later today. We're so excited to yeah. watch that. But I was reading about Orson Welles after watching that movie, and I came across this quote that's attributed to him, and he said something like, "A lack of boundaries." is the enemy of good art. Yes. And I totally agree (laughs) with that. I think that really applies to this movie. And I personally also, I just watched Being John Malkovich and I really did not enjoy that. And I feel a lot of the same things. I think watching that kind of put this movie into context because this was the only thing that I had seen of Charlie Kaufman's. And when I watched Being John Malkovich, I was like, okay, I get his style. It's not for me. I will say that I liked, I'm thinking of ending things a lot more, Mm -hmm. but just the way that he kind of throws chaos at the audience Mm -hmm. doesn't work for me. And I don't know if I'll get excited for the next thing that he (laughs) writes and directs. I mean, a good example of how he throws chaos in a good way is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I've not seen that. Oh, because a big stretch of that movie takes place, I get, well, it's a complicated plot, but in Jim Carrey's mind as he's losing memory, but also recalling Uh it at the same time. So it's a lot of stuff happening at Uh once and it's very visually interesting. And that's an example where the chaos works in the movie's favor. Mm. In this example, it's just, it's too much in yeah. in my opinion, and it seems like in your opinion yeah. as well. Yeah. But it's an interesting thing to talk about, and, you know, we can get into our journeys, because it's yeah. obviously based on a book, and I almost don't know who else could have covered this subject matter. Right. Because the book is also very chaotic. And I think maybe one of the reasons that makes me uncomfortable is because I am a very ordered person, and anything that is disorganized to me gives me anxiety and Mm -hmm. that's not an overstatement i danny has seen me go into cleaning mode and if you don't get out of my way during cleaning mode i get very physically uncomfortable and i hit (laughs) (laughs) she beats me (laughs) 
I just I just get very physically uncomfortable when I am trying to order things and people introduce disorder when I'm in that mindset. So the fact that this book is very chaotic and Charlie Kaufman picked it up and decided to adapt it makes sense to me. Right. He just seems to thrive in that environment. It seems like a book that you'd read and be like, oh, no one could ever make a movie out of this. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. I uh, guess what I'm saying is that makes sense. And, right. But do you want to cover your journey with... Yeah. Well, I've already told kind of my history with Charlie Kaufman and of how I've always been a fan of his for the most part. His misfires, again, cinephiles are going to hate me, but his... 2007, I think, movie, Synecdoche, New York, with the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. That movie is critically acclaimed. It bombed at the box office, um, which kind of explains why Charlie Kaufman is now moving to Netflix. But that's an example where, listen, I'm sure it's brilliant if you dig into it. It's just so much that I just can't, I, I just shut off because it's just, it, it's just like too much work is okay. needed to be done. But adaptation, starring Nicolas Cage and Meryl Streep, I mean, that's an amazing movie. It's in my top 100, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, amazing movie, Being John Malkovich, amazing movie, um, Anomalisa, which was a stop-motion animation movie he made a couple years ago with David Thewlis, who stars in I'm Thinking of Ending Things. That's a great movie, too. I don't think it's amazing, but it's still great. So as soon as I heard that this movie was coming out, and it stars Jesse Plemons, who we both love oh, from Game Night. Adore. We, we just watched Game Night the, the other night. This is a plug for our favorite movie. <laughs> no, honestly, one of my favorite comedies. Full Top stop. A hundred percent. We. It is so funny. And it's a movie where it's rare where comedies are actually funny to the it, with that frequency oh, where yeah. the jokes land at that. So watch Game Night. Jesse Plemons gives one of the best comedic performances. He should have been nominated for an Academy Award, right. and I'm not overstating that. Right. And comedic performances <laughs> are rarely nominated, right? Sure. But Melissa McCarthy was nominated for Bridesmaids, so mm. why can't Jesse Plemons be nominated for Game Night? I don't know. It, that was a big travesty. Listen, Anyways. I, yeah, I was gonna say. Listen, Listen, Jason Bateman, Rachel, Rachel McAdams, Jesse Plemons, Kyle Chandler, Chandler, stacked cast. Yeah, they all nail it. Even the minor characters. Yeah, Lam so uh, funny. Lamorne Morris from uh, New Girl, oh, who plays Winston. Yeah. Oh, Billy Magnuson, who's the Just the Keys guy. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Anyway, go watch, watch that movie. Watch it, it is now. So good. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> so, so I heard this movie was coming out. Charlie Kaufman, Jesse Plemons, another Jesse, the. Jesse. Buckley. Yeah, who I just discovered in the movie Beast. And we talked about her in the uh, Martian episode and the Emma episode. So I'm like, yeah, this looks like a stacked cast. Oh, Tony Collette playing oh. the mom. David Thewlis, the dad. I mean, what a cast. So I was pumped for it. And we put it on our syllabus for season three. Yeah, that's my whole that's my whole journey. I, did, I watched the movie first. I think you too or... Or did you read the book? Yeah. Yeah. And this is a case where I wish I actually had read the book first because I was a little confused and the book obviously would have added context, but... Uh, no, I don't know about how much it would have added context. Well, but... the whole, I mean, the whole twist at the yeah. end of it being in Jake's mind the whole time. I, I mean, I thought it was a completely different thing going into it. And of course, that's not the movie's fault. That's my fault. But... I was super confused because I thought the whole movie was a metaphor for a failing relationship. And mm -hmm. 
this is a little bit embarrassing, but I actually didn't get the double meaning of the title until the end. I, I had no idea that I was dealing with suicide. I'm like, oh, okay, that right. I should have I should have got that from the title alone. So that's a little embarrassing. So I wish I read the book first. And I think the book is a little boring that going in knowing the twist, you know, it speaks to thrillers. Like thrillers can be boring if you see it a second time, if you know the twist, mm -hmm. but something like Gone Girl, that's not boring because that movie's just so rewatchable, rewatchable yeah. and well-made. And I mean, it's David Fincher, so. But the book, I mean, for my, sh you'll see what I feel about the book. I think it's well-written, but I'm not gonna lie. I was a tad bored knowing where things were going. And mm -hmm. I wish I had read the book first and maybe I would have liked both better, but. That's why I have such a hard and fast rule about yeah. reading. But for this one, it just wasn't possible because yeah. the book didn't come and yeah you know we sat down and had a moment to watch it so yeah that's my journey how about you i don't have a long journey like danny i watched it first and was very uncomfortable very squirmy through the first viewing and i interestingly found the book very gripping even though i knew what happened in the end it's a very strange combination of psychological thriller and anti-rom-com. So uh, I, I think this might be a chicken and egg book for me. Like, I don't know if it would have mattered if I had read the book first. Mm -hmm. Although I guess it would have given me a little bit more context. When we went into it, I didn't really know who Charlie Kaufman was and I didn't really know where the movie was going at all. But mm -hmm. I think they are quite different overall. And so I don't know. That's about it. That's all I have to say about yeah. well, my journey. Well, let's get into how they're so different. I think in summary, I think the book is more horror. It's very, yeah. the book is very scary. It's super scary. And there's a lot of elements that are almost confusing because by the time it gets to the end, you kind of know that it, things aren't actually happening, but you don't quite know. So you have that very unsettling feeling of what's not right. I can't put my finger on it, but I think to put that on screen was a very interesting. Yeah. So instead thing. of going in the horror route, Charlie Kaufman went in a more kind of ethereal, yeah. dreamlike route, which it's still, the movie is still very distressing, but it's not straight right. up horror like yeah. the book is. The, yeah, in the book, specifically when Lucy's character, who's not named in the book, right. she does not have a name. In fact, she doesn't even have a gender in the book. I think the only time that you kind of realize that Jake is straight is because he talks about past girlfriends. Yeah. So Lucy's never named, but in the book, when her character goes into the school, it literally turns into a, a horror plot. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's so scary. Like she goes into the school and she is running away from someone that she knows is chasing her and she has to hide. Oh my gosh, there's this one scene where she goes into a classroom and there's a camera that's been trained on the car that she and Jake drove up in and she can like there's a shirt from her childhood in the yeah. classroom it's so so scary and at one point the janitor is like crawling on the floor oh, not looking yeah. at her with his face down and like his arms are and another element that's not in the movie is the old man stalking the main yeah. heroine throughout yeah. the movie which I actually think would have been helpful in the movie to add that to add to the already oppressive atmosphere yeah. but i 
I'm kind of curious as to why that was removed because there's a hint of that in the beginning. Right before they start their road trip, you see the old man looking down at Jesse Buckley. You watch it again and that's kind of a big hint that they're the same person or that it's all happening inside his mind because like the old man starts his day and he's looking down and where he's looking is where his daydream starts. Oh, yeah. And then as he's going throughout his day, it cuts back to the actual main story and there are references in his daydream daily routine that blend into the story that we're watching and it's kind of it's it's obvious the second time you watch it but of course but the first time it's very jarring yeah full disclosure i have not rewatched the movie so a lot of stuff if you remind me of things sure things will kind of come back to me because i just i couldn't sit through it again it's yeah just no i i get it <laughs> i also wanted to back up a little bit and talk about the author ian reed yeah who wrote the book. So the book came out in 2016 and he's from Canada. And this is a super random fun fact, but his sister is the first lady of Iceland. She's married Whoa. to the president of Iceland, which I think is so interesting. Iceland, man. This Let's just move there. I want to just, I, I want to live in Iceland. It's a huge tourist yeah. draw right now. It's like very hip to go to Iceland. Yeah. But he's relatively young. This was his first book. He was 39. He's 39 right now. And he wrote it in 2016. So you do, you do the math because I don't want to do He was 12 when he wrote this book. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything else that this guy has He's written. written two other books and he's won a few awards, but I haven't read anything else that he's written. Was I, this book like critically acclaimed at all? Do you know? So the only thing that I know about its release is that it was marketed as a summer thriller. Mm. And some people thought that that was poor marketing because, yeah. which I totally understand because it's not a, a summer book and it, two, it is not really a psychological thriller. It's more of a philosophical piece. <laughs> it's hard to describe and I understand why they might've tried for a wider audience by pitching it as a straightforward thriller. But I think even if I had picked this up based on that marketing, I would have been disappointed in that sense and just confused. But I don't know how big it was. I think right now it's getting a lot more attention because the movie's on Netflix. And for the most part, I think more people are watching it first and perhaps going back to the source material. But yeah, that's a fun fact I have is that Charlie Kaufman intentionally wanted to make this movie for a streaming service because A, he knew he couldn't make it for a big budget. It. And B, he knew that more people would watch it on a streaming service. No one would go to the theater. I mean, he already suffered that through Synecdoche, New York, which was a huge financial failure. Luckily, it didn't derail his career, but almost. And then Anomalisa, which was that stop motion one, that wasn't too expensive to produce, but it still was a flop as well. So he knew that for something like this, he had to make it for a low budget. And that's in one interview he said, he's like, okay, max I could get for this movie. Max is like $15 million. So yeah, streaming service all the way. And yeah, and Netflix came on early on in the production to buy the distribution right and yeah. yeah, it w went from there. So low budget movie. Brie Larson was um, initially supposed to star as the main woman. But yeah, Jesse Buckley is credited as the woman because throughout the movie, she goes through a bunch of different names. At one point, she's named Lucy, then uh, Louisa, then then yeah, Ames, and then Lucia. And at one point, she gets a call from Yvonne. And Yvonne is the character in that rom-com, that fake rom-com that she watches that at the end, it says oh, directed by Robert Zemeckis, director of Back to the Future 
trilogy and nice. cast away. Well, I want to know if you have a log line. You gave one earlier, but it was kind of a joke. I want to know if you <laughs> could sort of come up with like a theme. Oh, yeah. For, I... the, for the book and the movie separately. Uh, Ooh, separately? I yeah. don't have, I have okay, one I mean, for the story one. together. Sure, so basically, and this is from my notes. So I, I call this movie is a nightmarish journey about dealing with the passage of time, the regret of missed opportunities, and the obsession with what could have been. And then it also deals with the lies we tell ourselves to keep ourselves from thinking we might be Judd, which is the character in Oklahoma, and Judd is the dud in that story. Oh. Um, So the lies that we tell ourselves from being that character. So, yeah, and the whole movie, I would say, is... And the book is not actually happening. It's all a creation, a daydream, if you will, of the older janitor Jake's mind. And the look of the woman is the the woman looked like who Jake almost gave his number to in the bar. But the personality of the woman is an amalgamation of all his past girlfriends. Yeah. So she looks like a love that could have been, and then I guess she acts like his past girlfriend, so loves that didn't work out. Yeah, because he's he can only personify her so much without jumping between people. But then she does do that eventually in the movie. I think you put that really eloquently. I leaned a little bit more into sort of the dangers of staying in a loveless relationship. I think maybe that's more of a sub theme. Right. And that's what I thought when watching it the first time, the whole movie was about. So that's why I was confused at the end. I'm like, wait a second, what's this old man? And who is Jesse Buckley? And Yeah. yeah, that's why I was so dang confused. Yeah. The reason that I leaned into that a little bit more was because of Jake's parents. And I think they really Mm. end up personifying that theme a lot. Yeah. You start seeing the cracks very early when they're fighting. And, you know, there's a lot of very uncomfortable scenes when Jesse finally brings Lucy into the house. But the other thing, too, that I thought was really interesting. Well, there I guess there are two more things. But one thing that the book really leans into is the inability to know somebody else's mind Mm. fully. And that's a really interesting thing. And actually, I was reading an article that somebody had written about the book and the author said just so you know this actually caused a crisis in my relationship because I realized that in the book there's a scene where I think it's Lucy she says basically there's no way of knowing someone else as well as you know yourself but maybe love happens when somebody realizes something about yourself that you don't even know so I think that was a very interesting thing to ponder and then the third thing I think goes back to the title and about the effect of loneliness. Yeah, I think what the book has that the movie doesn't is this long passage where Jake is talking about his brother, quote unquote, who doesn't actually exist. He's actually talking about himself. And he's saying that his brother was this person who had aspirations and was smart. I mean, he was working in the science field. I I forget his exact role, but something fancy in science or medical research. And he's talking about his brother about having these aspirations, but ultimately he wasn't a people person and he felt 
isolated in his own community among his peers, and he eventually resorted to this job where he could blend into the background and be left alone, and no one would really see him. But the irony is, by becoming a janitor, what he was doing was seeing every day high schoolers. And he's in seeing youth, he became envious and wanted to look back into his his past as well. And at the same time, these high schoolers were making fun of him and making him feel less than. Mm. So actually becoming a janitor was really the worst thing he could have done because he was even more smothered by society mm-hmm. with, by, with these <laughs> dang... a job that a lot of people don't recognize as important. Yeah. So yeah, not only were people not recognizing him as important, but the looks he would see from high schoolers only made him feel worse. Like he could see that high schoolers really didn't value him yeah. at all. So, yeah, it was this long passage in the book about his brother, which it's pretty easy to tell. Oh, he's talking about himself. That wasn't in the movie. I don't know why. I mean, I feel like it really would have hammered home the point of how Jake became a janitor without being too on the nose. Yeah, it's it's very unclear. I don't know if Kaufman didn't want Jake to be the janitor in the movie, but to me that link was not clear. I think the only way that we would have known that is because of the pig. Yeah, and then on a second watch, it becomes clear that Jake is the janitor because what he's seeing in his daily routine shows up in the narrative between Jake and Lucy. Lucy. Let's just call her Lucy. But the first time, yeah, we were a little confused about that. We're like, wait a second. So the janitor and Jake are the same, but then it gets confusing because when they have that whole elaborate dance sequence, the older janitor dancer kills the younger version of himself. It's like, wait a second. I'm confused now that I thought they're the same person, but then a Jake, he kills his younger self. Like his older dreams kill his younger Like the other thing too is like Jesse Plemons in the very end is dressed up to be an old man, but he's obviously not the man who played the old janitor. Right. And so I think maybe Jesse Plemons could have played the old janitor. Or the old janitor could have played Jesse Plemons in the last sequence. In the last sequence, yeah. Well, let's just talk about that last sequence. So it's confusing on the first watch. In the second watch, you understand that, okay, he's singing a song from Oklahoma, a musical that he's always loved. And the song itself, that very song, is about a creep who lives alone who is infatuated with this, the musical's heroine, Lori, close to... Mm -hmm. Lucy and the song is about him wanting to make Lori his wife and to move out and so he's at the end of his life and his story has run out so now in his dying moments he's fabricating the story of glory where he's not only performing a song but he is receiving a Nobel medal and a fun fact that I didn't realize until I looked this up So earlier on in the film, when Lucy is looking at his whole DVD and book collection, she sees a DVD of a beautiful mind. Oh, I found that detail as well. Yeah. So the ending scene is both a reference to a beautiful mind where he receives a Nobel award and then also Oklahoma where he's seeing. So Hmm. the ending is is all a performance. So that explains why everyone is wearing obviously fake makeup. But to have it go from the old man back to Jesse Plemons, it's like, okay, I like to see Jesse Plemons, but at this point, it's clear that they're the same person. It's the old man who's dying. It's the old man who's committing suicide. So why 
why obfuscate it a little bit more by going back to Jesse Plemons? Yeah, it, it should have been the old man in obvious old makeup. I agree. Well, it's interesting because I also found this quote by Charlie Kaufman in an article that I honestly think I'm going to post with our announcement of this episode. Sure. But Charlie Kaufman said, I'm not really big on explaining what things are. I let people have their experiences, so I don't really have expectations about what people are going to think. I really do support anyone's interpretation. And like what you said, I think for him, it doesn't matter that that would have made it clear to the audience. Right. But for us, I just feel like, well, for someone like me, who's going to watch the movie once, it's kind of like, just give me that. Yeah, <laughs> like, just give me something. Just, exactly, <laughs> give me something to come out of the movie feeling like I, I didn't waste my time. Mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily feel like I would. With being John Malkovich, I honestly felt like I wasted my time. With this one, I feel like there are a lot of really interesting themes, but the movie doesn't quite bring the themes all the way around. And I just think that's a little bit of a shame when you do put $15 million into a project. Yeah. That someone would walk away feeling more confused than like they got something out of it. And I think that something like making the older man play the janitor in the end would have made it clearer to me that he's watching his life yeah. and his regrets. And that would sort of push the audience to say like, oh, I should act rather than not act. The The first watch is a little disorienting and not in the satisfying way for mm -hmm. sure. And the book's ending, as we've alluded to earlier, is horror yeah. In terms of Jake, the woman, the janitor come to realize they're all the same person. And then the woman and the janitor meet and he hands Jake a clothing hanger, which he unravels and stabs himself to death. Yeah, which is death. like, that is so, so graphic yeah. and sad. And he does it in the janitor's closet, yeah. which is just very Very disturbing. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you know, his body is there. And what is also not included in the movie is... In the book, there are interjected conversations between what's most likely either parents or teachers who are involved with the school talking about the suicide and how dark it would be for anybody to come across mm -hmm. this suicide. And so, again, it just speaks to how much darker the book is yeah. than the movie. Uh, because, you know, I mean, it's sad that the janitor commits suicide in the movie, but he basically does it through hypothermia. He just sits in his car and allows himself to sort of freeze to death. But, right. yeah, like, the suicide in the book is just... I mean, yeah, it's pretty... And it's the way that Ian Reid leads up to it is very chaotic. And it's prefaced by basically two pages of the phrase, what are you waiting for? 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 And that, it was really interesting. Number one, it's very scary. Yeah. <laughs> because you start to realize, oh, he's suicidal. Yeah. And it's not about taking action with his life or with his decisions in the world. It's with this coat hanger that he's going to kill himself with. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. It kind of made me think of a couple things. So it made me think of the series of unfortunate events, which I don't know if I've talked about this on the show, but that's one of my absolute favorite young adult literature series. Because in the third book, the same thing is done with one of the characters, not with suicide, but then also it reminded me of The Shining. Yes. Because of obviously all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of had those very dark, 
horror themes echo through this literary device. Yeah. And it's very disturbing. Well, I have, uh, speaking of those couple pages with what are you waiting for, what are you waiting for over and over again, it's even creepier in the audiobook. So I, I listened oh. to this audiobook, yeah. and the whole book is imagine. narrated by a woman. Up until those pages where it's silent for a second, and I thought, oh, my phone is buffering. Right. But then the woman starts going, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And <gasps> it keeps on going. That. And I was oh I, I was so I was driving, right? Oh my and it was God. at night coming home from work. Everything and just thinking happens. about it, I have goosebumps. I mean, look I at this. I can <laughs> absolutely. And confirm. it's silent for a second. And she goes, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And I it keeps on going oh for a God. minute. And then about a minute in, a man's voice starts to creep up it. from oh behind. Like, this and, and then at, at, at one point, then it's a man and a woman's voice. Like, what are you waiting for? And it slowly morphs into a man's voice, and the final, like, ten pages are told, are narrated by a, oh, God, a, a man. That. I hate that. I and, hate and they didn't advertise as that, but it was one of the creepiest experiences. I mean, that is true horror. And yeah. and I gotta say, I, I mean, it was so well done. Props to whoever produced the recording of this, but... Well, it's so interesting because we're talking about the difference of three mediums yeah. of telling a story. Right. So I read the physical book and the only way that I figured out that Lucy and the janitor was the same character as Jake was there started to be inconsistencies with pronouns. Mm -hmm. And it was really confusing because sometimes there would be a we sprinkled in or there would be an us sprinkled in yeah. or a she or a he. And I was like, why is this happening? And it's very unsettling because you think that you know the characters that you're spending time with. Right. And then there's sort of a crisis in the end, right before Jake commits suicide. And it's just literally we is like every other word. And us then becomes every other word. And then me and I yeah. become every other word. And that honestly is giving me chills because yeah. when I was reading it, I was having this crisis like, holy crap, I've been spending time with one character the whole time and he's not even a young person. He's an old man. Yeah. And that was just so creepy to me. And then we talk about you listening to the audiobook, and then we watched the movie and that's totally different the way that they the way right. that Charlie Kaufman interpreted that and brought it to the screen and, but I, they're, and they're very they're all very unsettling so props right. to everybody who made that work <laughs> yeah it, it goes back to what we said in the beginning I think Charlie Kaufman is so smart and so well read and obviously knows references like Oklahoma and yeah. Pauline Kael which we'll talk about so he sprinkles that through his movie and includes all these references this is an insane complaint but I just think Charlie Kaufman is just too smart for his own good sometimes. And this movie is ironically too layered and too well written. Densely written. D densely written, where it actually confuses when at the home stretch, it really should be pulling stuff in. But I mentioned Pauline Kale, and that mm -hmm. goes back to a scene where the second time they're driving, so much driving in this movie, by the way. <laughs> the second time they're driving, just. Literally, sorry, literally in silence. And that's another part that just should have been chopped down. Right. Yeah. Like... It, it's in the beginning, they drive for about 18 minutes. When they leave their parents' house, it's about 20. 
20 minutes. So 23 minutes actually. So yeah, 40 minutes of driving in a 128 minute movie or something along those lines. Long, long movie. And so that's a good portion, a good third. But oh yeah, so pulling Kale. So earlier on when Lucy sees Jake's book stack and also all his movies, we talk, already talked about A Beautiful Mind, but you also see Pauline Kale, who is a popular film critic, who has a lot of filmed reviews and written reviews. And Lucy goes on this long rant about the movie A Woman Under the Influence, I think, John Cassavetti's movie. And it's word for word Pauline Kale oh, from Pauline Kale's review. And again, I'm big into film criticism, but I didn't read that review. And even if I did, I wouldn't have known that that's what Jesse Buckley was reciting. And it's like a five minute scene where they just talk about this movie. And it's like, I get it. They're referencing a book that Jake once read. And it's like, okay, I get it. They're the mm-hmm. same person. Like, can we move on? And that goes for a lot of the two driving scenes yeah. where it's like, this is all good stuff but let's get going. And this is actually one of the few instances where I think there are scenes in the movie that were longer than in the book. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. obviously a book, you have more time to talk and delve this into things. This is a things. very short book. Yeah. I think I, re- I actually read this in a couple days because I was so gripped. Right. So yeah, it's, it's like quick, what? It's a quick read. 150 or so in pages. In my version, it is 210. Okay. So yeah, a, a quick quick little read and yeah the scenes of driving were actually shorter in the book and in the movie they include more like the Pauline Kale stuff that's not in the book and in the beginning Jesse Buckley's whole reading of dog bone or bone dog I forget the poem that she talks about that goes on forever and that's the point you're kind of early on you're showing something's not right here at first she said she doesn't remember the poem and then she remembers every single word and it's like a five minute poem she just goes on on and on and they just talk and talk and talk and no matter how compelling it is it's still just 20 minutes of straight talking and again cinephiles love that type of stuff i normally do too but this is just too much talking both driving sessions could have been cut down by 10 minutes yeah. easily well i want to go back to the larger conversation about illusions in the book because mm. i I keep wanting to say Iron Ride because of Iron Flying. Yeah. <laughs> this is like an inside joke from another podcast that we love called James Bonding. We've talked about it before. But Ian Reed does that in the novel a lot. And his point with the allusions and the poem that you discussed and how Lucy thinks that she's written it, but if you're familiar with the poem, she obviously hasn't written it. And then she realizes that later in the book. And what Ian Reed, I think is saying is that Jake's perception of reality has become very blurred. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the point of Lucy going into his room and seeing all of these pop culture references. And we kind of realize that he's just through osmosis, just completely made outside things his reality. Yeah. And Charlie Kaufman clearly loved that. Oh, yeah. And leaned into it. But like what we were talking about earlier, I just don't think that his illusions are clear enough. Especially like with a book, I did not know that poem. Yeah. Right? And I I wouldn't even have known to Google those lines to figure out that it was a poem outside of the novel. And I'm fairly with it (laughs) as far as literature goes. So I think a lot of that is actually all 
also lost in the novel, but it kind of, you kind of come to the realization because of things that Ian Reid gives you to figure those things out, uh, like the painting. Yeah. You realize that obviously she didn't paint the painting, but then to go to the movie and reference things like Oklahoma or a movie critic from the 1970s or the, the layers of illusions that are in here, I just don't know that the idea lands. We don't necessarily understand a beautiful mind. I mean, did that come out what in like 1999 oh, oh, or what was it? Yeah, no, it was 2001. Sure. So why would anyone remember that movie? I, I actually, I think I read it won like Best Picture, but yeah. a lot of people they think it's kind of it was like a mushy pick. And... Right. Yeah. Uh, which I, I agree with that sure. as well. Yeah. So it's although it is brilliant that Jake thinks that's something to aspire to when in the movie when he pretends he's winning a Nobel Peace Prize sure. like in the movie when in when everyone knows that's a fabricated fantasy that would never get you know that's that's very much a lie because sure. a lot of a beautiful mind was a lie about that person's real life sure yeah okay so but I guess the point is it's fine to throw illusions into writing and movies and they don't have to slap you in the face by being obvious yeah for example I'm reading Fahrenheit 451 right now and there's an allusion to a Jonathan Swift poem and I obviously wouldn't have known yeah <laughs> like, I don't know his body of work well enough to know I had to google those lines but it, they shouldn't fly over your head yeah. I think as these do and in my first viewing, before I read anything about the movie, I didn't even pick up a single illusion, I don't think. Mm -hmm. I, I had no idea that that was a layer yeah. of this piece. And after you watched it for the first time, did some research, and then dove into the movie a second time, then you were able to pull out a bunch of stuff that then you shared with me that made a lot of sense. And I, I understand now the parallels <laughs> between Judd from Oklahoma and Jake, but even then... I'm like, in what world does he have such an encyclopedic knowledge of Broadway shows to like have made that parallel? I love doing homework for movies. Mm -hmm. However, the amount of homework I had to do for this movie, I felt like I was writing my thesis for film school. Yeah. Like I've it was never tough. done I spent a lot of time researching yeah. this for the podcast. <laughs> and and I do that too. And we, we obviously have a podcast where we hope to bring new information to our listeners, but this one almost felt like I was, yeah, like I was writing a paper. I couldn't read enough to try to understand the movie to the point where I felt like I could confidently talk about it. Yeah. And I'm sure we're missing things yeah, as well. Yeah, and, and this is to say, if this is your thing, if you love this movie, I mean, more power to you. This isn't something where if you love it for all those illusions or you love it because you can do all this homework mm -hmm. and you can keep on rewatching it. I mean, that's cool. And I think Charlie Kaufman would say, you're who I made this movie for. Yeah. Because in the article that I read, he says, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, it's not a movie for you. Yeah. So I think that's fine. Which is crazy because I thought after his past, let's say critical, no, commercial, failures he would make a more accessible movie i mean he doesn't have to worry about box office on netflix mm -hmm. but i thought like oh netflix everyone's just gonna watch this or a lot of people are gonna watch this mm -hmm. more so than they would in a theater i thought okay he's gonna make a movie that's really accessible and despite being a little weird it's gonna be easy to well, understand yeah. but the opposite actually happened this is his most dense inaccessible movie since Synecdoche, New York. I'd argue that it's even more dense than that movie. Hmm. I haven't seen it. Right, so I but I would just say that this is by far his weirdest and hardest to grasp story Interesting. that he's in his entire career. Mm -hmm. So Interesting. 
Well, let's go. We haven't talked about my favorite part of both the book and the movie, which is the scenes in his house where he grew up with his parents. Yeah, we should wrap up with this because I think it will end on a positive note because I enjoyed that scene probably the most out of anything. And it was heavily advertised as that's what the movie would take place in that house. Right. When in reality, it's a third of the movie takes place in that yeah. house. When the other third takes place in the car, the last third takes place in the high school. Slash a fever dream. Right. His mind. <laughs> yeah, as he's dying as via he's hypothermia. Oh God, yeah. So I really enjoyed that part of the movie and book, but more so the movie because just Tony Collette and David Thewlis, I mean, Watching incredible them. actors. David Thewlis, so funny. for those who don't know, who is uh, he was Professor Lupin, yeah. right? In Harry Potter. Tony Collette plays a version of his mom, who in the book it's more fleshed out that his mom in later years started to go a little bit... Well, she has Alzheimer's right. or dementia. Either one of those. And in she started... clinical opinion. And knowing that the whole story is a daydream, his mom, you know, changes ages throughout the movie. Yeah. But she's kind of representing of Jake's memory of the mom, of her kind of always being a little off and her memory going in and out and emotionally not really stable. And Tony Collette, what a... Perfectly actress cast. yeah and i, I mean ever since anything i see her in, right i, I just mean, worship at her feet she's so smart and such a good actress i will say despite what you think about hereditary her performance in that one of the biggest oscar snubs of all time and she was great in knives well, out i was just gonna say we talk about how not a lot of comedic performances get nominated for academy awards but she's in knives out and she's yeah. hilarious great and obviously she was nominated for the sixth sense all the way back in 99 and she, she was amazing playing the mom of uh, Haley Joe Osment and that. Love Tony Collette. David Thewlis, though, he not as well known as an actor outside of Harry Potter, but he's also great. And his little scene when he's older and Jake's childhood room when he's oh talking gosh. to Lucy and he's also saying he can't remember as well. Yeah. I mean, just heartbreaking, but so well done and a little funny of like how he can't stop forgetting stuff and he always like shakes so his head sweet. yeah because yeah, he's also aware that he's also suffering from uh memory stealing disease and so watching him apologize and watching him put the sticky notes on stuff so that he can remember things and his wife can remember things it's unnerving in a way because you know you just saw him young mm -hmm. and then we see he suddenly walks in and he's aged you know by 30 years but it's also just in the moment so sweet and I think that both of them walked the line of aging in a very realistic way and the makeup the old age makeup when they're about to leave the house and you see Tony Collette as the old mom like on her deathbed yeah. who I guess I think in that scene she has died and even Lucy's like is she okay and yeah. like Tony Collette's died but yeah she looks like an old woman not like an actress in yeah. in makeup like it in prosthetics, it, it, she looks like an actual. It reminds old me woman. of how going back to Citizen Kane. I can't stop talking about it because I loved the movie so much. But yeah. it reminded me of how surprisingly well Orson Welles was aged up in yeah. that movie. Like he literally looks like his old self. Right. It's weird that he didn't act that movie out 40 years later and then yeah. just splice himself back into those scenes because he looks legit old. Yeah. And like fatter and. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A uh, uh, great makeup work and i should say all the technical stuff of this movie is well done the cinematography yeah i really by loved it 
The colors, the warmth. Yeah, cinematography by Lucas Zhao, who I think he shot Cold War, which was nominated in 2018. Yeah, great cinematography. It's in uh, four by three frames, so kind of that square look, and that adds to kind of the claustrophobic feel of the story. That that, uh, frame is even exaggerated even more in The Lighthouse, which that might show up in the movies that should be books episode. But yeah, The Lighthouse even goes... Or movies most likely to make you throw up in your seat. Yeah, <laughs> both. I, I, was, I was about to die. When yeah. saw that. And I was, I'm just like, wow, this is, this nightmares for me. Yeah, <laughs> but and then Willem Dafoe came out and gave an interview while we were there. It was so cool. Oh, that's, yeah. a, that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, the the cinematography, acting, sound, and direction, it's all, all great. But as we've said, too much writing. But back to the house, that dinner scene they have is also a great representation of the uncomfortableness you feel when meeting yeah. your boyfriend or girlfriend's parents for the first time. I mean, and, and also how uncomfortable they can be. Right. Just meeting someone. It's a different dynamic knowing that there's one person <laughs> being right. intimate with your child, but also, you know, you're trying to get to know them and you're also gauging whether they're good enough for your child and you're talking about their career and like you're envisioning their future and in the movie that's all happening at once since this is all taking place in Jake's mind and Mm -hmm. so the whole time David Thewlis the dad doesn't even look at Jake throughout the whole movie Mm -hmm. he just looks at Lucy the whole time and that's kind of another hint that hey they're the same Mm -hmm. person I mean a big hint is when they're waiting for their parents and they finally come down when after like 40 minutes minutes. Yeah. yeah David Thewlis shakes Jake's hand, but he's still looking at Lucy or Jesse Buckley the the whole time. Right. It's a great representation of what you said earlier of, you know, the trouble of staying in a relationship, like meeting your significant other's parents for the first time and then seeing all the quirks of the house and seeing all the childhood memorabilia and trophies mm-hmm. and also oh like oh this is what you your hopes and dreams like you had once dabbled in art and mm-hmm. you wanted to be an artist and of course that's a clue that Jake once dabbled in art and he actually couldn't make it work because mm-hmm. like most things in his life he just he didn't follow through, didn't follow through. Yeah. and this is not to say that becoming a janitor is not a fine profession but mm-hmm. for Jake it's obviously not what he wanted. Yeah it's also interesting because I also at first thought of I'm thinking of ending things to refer to a relationship and also just because I had seen the clip on Netflix that automatically plays yeah. when you go to the home page and I thought it was so interesting that sort of period in a relationship where, and <laughs> I watch a lot of The Bachelor, don't judge me, <laughs> but that period in the in the relationship where you know that you're going to have to take the next step. And let's say that's meeting the parents or moving in together, or oh, we're also watching Schitt's Creek where <laughs> Alexis actually has this great line of, I don't think I'm in this relationship enough to take us to the next step. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell you who that's with just in case people haven't watched Schitt's Creek, but go watch Schitt's Creek. It's a great show. And it's better to cut things off before you take that next step because the deeper you get into that relationship, the more you're gambling getting into something that might eventually end because you're not happy or you stay in it 
forever until you die like Jake's parents and you're unhappy the rest of your life. And so I just think it's an interesting moment to come into this person's relationship before we know that she's the same person as Jake. And it's just interesting to watch someone know that they're making a mistake. Yeah. And taking the next step in the relationship that she knows that she's not ready for, but she's still uncomfortable and she does it anyway. And I think that's very true of a lot of relationships. Like I was dating someone in college and I met his parents and it only made it harder to break up. But I said, okay, anyway. And I just shouldn't have done that. You know, it's something that you learn as you go, but it's just something that makes it a little bit hard to extract yourself. Yeah. Like a great line in both the book and the movie is that it's easier to say yes than it is to say no. Totally. Meaning that's easier to stay in a relationship than to break it off. Right. That couldn't be truer. But all the stuff in the house, so well done. But yeah, they leave around, what is it, the hour mark? And you're like, man, we still have 70 minutes left to go. I I thought this was going to be the whole movie. Well, if Charlie Kaufman had not done the whole Oklahoma thing at the end, and had made it into a horror closer to what had happened in the novel, I would have been really interested to see that movie. Yeah. Because that was one of the, again, like I keep using the word gripping to describe the novel, but it is gripping. It's a horror movie where she has been stalked. And now she's trapped inside a small high school. And it's so scary. I could not stop reading because I had to know if she was going to come out on the other side. And then you find out that he doesn't. Yeah. And it, it, it even makes more sense because she thinks she's being stalked when in reality it's just the old Jake looking back at this constructed past mm-hmm. and present, I guess. Where in the movie, being called, but it's like she's being called by herself, okay? But there's no urgency in the calls no. because in the book, she knows she's being stalked by this man and getting calls from this man. But in the movie, she's just getting calls and it's like... But she keeps sending them to voicemail. Right. So it's like she really never picks up and she really doesn't or or do when with yeah, it. when she does pick up, you really have no reference for what the guy is saying and, and you can't really hear it cuz it's kind of muddled and it, it's really with no purpose confusing. And right. if they added that horror element, I think, I mean, in our opinions, it would have been a little yeah. more effective. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that even though I wished that the movie took place more in the house, there is some urgency when as soon as they leave, Jesse Buckley keeps on saying, we need to get home. We need to get home. We need to get home. Yeah. And and Jake keeps on going on these detours. And it's, it's really tense because you know yeah. that they're in a snowstorm. Something like that, if you get stuck, mm-hmm. easily could freeze to death. And you realize that he's stalling to spend more time with her in the real life, which means he's unstable to get to let go of this fantasy. In this fantasy, he's still alive and he's asking this woman, what's the answer to the question? Meaning that, should I kill myself or do I deserve to live? And ultimately the answer is no for him. You know, there's this interpretive dance that goes on for way too long, which is there's an interpretive dance in Oklahoma. Another reference to this darn musical. Uh, yeah, but once he's confronted with the reality that he's living a lie, meaning that he never actually was in a relationship with Jesse Buckley, that's when he knows that he should kill himself. Like he even tell Jake even tells the woman like you're the only reason I'm here, or, or at least the janitor tells her that when in the movie when they meet, like you're the only reason I'm here. Once she leaves, that that's it. So so that part is tense, but uh, the beautiful mind Oklahoma stuff a little too much. I wish the movie was cut, not only cut down but focused more on on the parents in the house. Yeah, that's uh, that's about it. I got I got for me any closing thoughts from you? 
I totally agree with everything you said. Something that we didn't talk about was the Tulsi Town oh, yeah. ice cream shop, which I, I think just can sort of get bundled into the conversation about how tense the end does get when Jake keeps taking her on these detours and she's very, very clearly uncomfortable. And that almost started to introduce a new theme about consent because I felt very uncomfortable. Like I've been in situations where I just don't, people keep doing things and I keep saying, I need to leave. I need to get myself out of this situation. And it doesn't happen. And the long Longer and longer it doesn't happen, the more and more scared you start to feel that there's an ulterior motive mm. for that. And I really felt her concern, especially when she started talking to that ice cream server and she says, get out. You know, it was, it was almost like, yeah, like, like, you don't need to, you don't need to go. And he's like, go where? Go forward. Like, right. You don't need it. And she was in a flashback. You see that she was a student who could clearly see that the janitor was depressed. Yeah. So, so I, I thought that was an interesting scene. And I thought it was kind of interesting that in the book, it's a Dairy Queen, but Charlie Kaufman couldn't get the rights to use Dairy Queen. So he decided to go with this sort of non-existent ice cream shop, but I thought it really leaned well into the whole small town feel of the movie, you know? Yeah. I thought it worked, but other than that, it's hard for me to rate the book and the movie. I would say if you know what you're getting into because you have context about what kind of movie Charlie Kaufman makes, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Don't go in thinking you're going to understand it. Maybe don't go in thinking <laughs> that you're going to rewatch it. But if you want to understand it more, you're going to have to rewatch it a few times and do a little bit of outside research. So I personally, just because of my gut reaction to the movie, I'd give it one star. Mm -hmm. That's fair. The, the book I'm going to give a three mm -hmm. because I think it's very interesting and I don't think it has any flaws. It's just a very different kind of book. Don't get locked into the perspective that you think you know who the narrator is. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very interesting, gripping read. Yeah, ratings for me. Listen, this is exactly the type of movie cinephiles like, but as I've said, it's just simply too much, too indulgent. It turned me off for a lot of it. But I don't have the heart to give this an overly negative rating either. So this is also not for me, but I do I do realize the technical achievements of this movie and how there is a lot for a lot of people. So two out of four for me. Again, so that, that's right in the middle. I'm not going to give it one and a half out of four. Seems too harsh, but it's definitely not over two. Maybe I'll bump my stars up by a half point just because I love the actors so yeah. much. They're so good. Yeah. So, yeah, so two, two, two out of four for the movie. The book... Again, I wish I had read it first. However, I was truly gripped by it. It was horrifying. But knowing the twist, a little boring. It's not necessarily something I want to revisit. Like I want to revisit the movie, even though it's more horrifying and more well-written than the movie. I, I'll go three out of four for the book too. Yeah. If you want something dark, go yeah, ahead and read it. I was, I was just trying to figure out someone that I would refer this book to. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's a tough sell. And I think the only reason I read it was because you said the movie was based on this book. So, Actually, you found the trailer first, I think, on, on Facebook. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I liked Collider, and so I feel like yeah. I'm getting ahead of Danny's movie news sometimes. <laughs> Collider.com, best movie site ever. Free plug. They, yeah. They have so much information. And when the pandemic is over, sometimes they do free viewings. Yeah. Movies. 
we've gotten a lot of really cool opportunities to yeah them, so so hopefully when this is all all done this we can start going back to those screenings so yeah all right well sounds like we've arrived at the end of our episode yes and i think this story deals with suicide so we wanted to yes. reference the national suicide prevention lifeline they have a number it is 1-800-273-8255 and if anybody is personally struggling with suicide or know somebody who is definitely encourage them to reach out and if you don't personally know someone or aren't personally struggling with it you can always donate either your money or your time yes all right this has been another great episode we'll see you on the next one which is going to be whatever we edit first <laughs> happy holidays yes happy holidays stay safe Please stay safe and listen to the national and local guidelines for your area because we do not want to see any more spikes. I'm so sick of staying inside. We need yes. to get out of this pandemic. Oh my God. Yeah. We need to get married. So please. Tomorrow. Let's go to Vegas. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next one.